When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. This is the preview for the Partially Examined Life, Episode 265, Part 2 on Plato's Dialogue, Phaedo. You're going to right now hear toward the beginning of that discussion, us delving into detail on Socrates' proofs for immortality of the soul, and in the course of this, his theory of forms. Enjoy. Now we get a bunch of arguments for the soul's immortality, and this is the first one, what some people sometimes call the cyclical argument, or what I like to call the recycling argument. It begins with this opposites come from opposites principle. Contrariness. What do we think of that? It doesn't sound plausible. So the reason he wants to introduce this is because where do living things come from? They must have come from death. They must have come from something that existed before death. This is how he's going to apply it, but he thinks this is generally applicable. If you want to understand more readily in connection, not only with mankind, but with all animals and plants and in general for all things subject to coming to be, let's see whether everything comes to be in this way. Opposites come to be only from their opposites. In the case of all things that actually have an opposite, as for example, the beautiful is opposite, of course, to the ugly, just to the unjust, and so in countless other cases. So let's consider this. Is it necessary that whatever has an opposite comes to be only from its opposite? For example, when a thing comes to be larger, it must surely come to be larger from being smaller before. So that example seems okay, right? Babies come from big people and then the babies grow into big people. So it's like large is coming from small and small is coming from large. Well, it depends on what we mean by opposite, right? Are larger and smaller opposites, they're relative terms. And unfortunately, I didn't give a lot of thought to this, but it seems problematic on its face, right? To call those things opposites. Are there no such thing as neutrals? Or is everything a contrary of something else? I think he just said, if it has an opposite. I don't think he's ruling out neutrals. But waking up and going to sleep is another example he gives. And clearly, whenever you wake up, you must have been asleep before. <laughs> whenever you're asleep, you must have been awake before. Otherwise, if it were possible that everything would only go one way, then everything would be asleep eventually. <laughs> so it has to be, there has to be a cycle. Yeah, so here the idea is that all forms of change are involving things that are constantly transforming between their contraries. So the argument goes that, you know, all things must come from their opposite states, right? So like larger from smaller. And then between every pair of opposite states, there are two processes corresponding to them. So becoming larger, becoming smaller. Counterclockwise and clockwise. Yeah. And then if those two processes didn't balance each other out, this is kind of like, it sounds almost like an entropy sort of argument. Then the world would, if becoming larger didn't balance out becoming smaller, then everything would just become smaller and smaller. And you can think of different applications to that. So it sounds like an entropy argument. And then he makes the move from being alive and being dead as opposite states and dying and coming to life as the two processes between them. So one must balance out the other, and therefore everything that dies must come back to life again. Reincarnation. In the same way that ultimately, on balance, things that get smaller must get larger again in order to cosmically balance things out and keep the universe going. On balance, we got to recycle souls. Can't just throw them away and invent new ones. <laughs> the universe recycles. 
And by implication, all the souls always existed. So I am maybe willing to answer my question to you, Wes, and say this is not <laughs> an example of rationalist epistemology because, as in the Timaeus, he's reasoning about the world of appearances. I mean, he hasn't made this distinction quite yet in the dialogue, but he's going to get there that actually, well, the form of largeness and the form of smallness, they don't evolve into one another. They don't change at all. They completely exclude one another. That's going to be important later that the form of life and the form of death can't allow each other into each other. So if the soul is what being alive is, if being alive is having a soul, then the soul excludes death. That's the kind of reasoning that he thinks he can have with certainty, that that's reasoning about, I want to say the things in themselves, but about the eternal realm. Whereas in this part, everything comes from its opposite. This has got to be about just the phenomenal things. And I think there's a justifiable intuition here once again, which is that it's like the Epicurean idea that we can't really die because dying happens to, would have to happen to someone and death is ceasing to be a subject. So it's not like, you know, there's no aftermath for us. And so it hasn't ever it never happens to us. Or, or think about our personal identity episode where death turns out to be an incoherent idea because it involves certain metaphysical ideas about continuity, about survival from one state to another, from one time slice of our consciousness to another that don't actually hold ever, right? We never get that kind of continuity. And finally, what I would say about this is just that whatever the soul is, it would have to be a strange sort of entity. And the intuition here is that talking about that entity coming into being or going out of existence in the way an empirical object would, growing or decaying, it doesn't on its face seem applicable. So I think, Mark, you're right. It does get at a difference between an empirical and non-empirical realm in the sense in which the soul stands outside of the empirical realm and the same rules just can't apply to it. But like the forms, it'll have to be eternal and persistent. I don't know how critical the opposite thing is, too. I was able to finally, I think, weave my way around it. Not sure how germane it is to the central thrust. Well, it's his way of introducing at least the possibility that the soul may have come from something that existed from a pre-birth soul, something like that. Our living soul must have come from something. To get there, he has to give the theory of recollection. So I think this opposites come from opposites thing. There are a lot of ways to interpret that, right? I like the idea that life comes from death, but it's not the same life. <laughs> it's that, you know, everything has to die to provide fertilizer for new things to grow. Like that is a perfectly sound ecological notion of this recycling theory, but there's nothing. In fact, that's the opposite. The soul persists through different lifetimes. That does not follow at all from that. With the recycling of the souls and with the myth of recollection, you see the solution to permanence in the face of change is constant cycling. You have eternality of the souls, and the way you solve that of having something be persistent through all time is that you make it a constant, a constant cycling in the, the realm of the senses, the realm of the physical world. But underlying it is something that is persisting in all time. And so the soul is living and dying, but the thing that's persisting the whole time, the body is living and dying, but the soul is persisting the whole time. And the experiences of memory and stuff like that is that there's a kind of forgetting that you get with recollection. And that forgetting is associated with the physical manifestation of our bodies. And that we are in learning and in knowing, we are reconnecting with the things that we always knew before that's already in our souls. It's a way to solve the problem of being versus becoming. And so, you know, it's clear that 
being is primary in all the epistemology for Plato. The things that are eternal are the things that are the things that are true that we focus on and that the things that are changing are the things that are part of the world of the senses, part of the realm of the physical experience. And not that that isn't sort of real in a sense. It's not the true, right? It's like the relationship between the triangle and things that are triangular in the world. Well, and it's not the thing we recollect. So the theory of recollection is only about these eternal matters of principle so that when we are, as in the Mino, when the slave boy is questioned about the Pythagorean theorem, he's able to deduce because, according to Plato, he is remembering the general form of triangularity or the general mathematical things from before birth. And you kind of need some schema. I mean, this relates to something we've discussed in a few different platonic dialogues that you can't learn anything unless you kind of know what you're looking for a little bit. We're not just a blank slate on which things are imposed. We have certain schemas. You know, it's like we're walking around with a question mark and then this information, we understand it because it gets filled in. Kant gives his own little twist on that, right? Where he takes the forms and puts them inside our head as categories and says we construct the world via a world of appearances via these categories and so on and so forth. Whereas for Plato, the categories just are the noumena. The real world just are the categories and the categories are outside of us. So they're not the structure of cognition as they are for Kant. They are the structure of the world and we've been exposed to that structure a priori before we were born. <laughs> so you were characterizing, Wes, that this dialogue is not really about immortality. It's an excuse to talk about things like this, this theory of recollection and the theory of forms, whereas I'm sort of taking it as it's given, which they're sort of referring to, let's just recollect the theory of recollection that we've talked about in other dialogues like the Mino that we've talked about. These discursions have talked about at other parties and more merry times. So they've never talked about the forms. This is the first dialogue to talk about the forms. In fiction, but in the, in the realm that's describing, they're saying, we've talked about this kind of stuff before. He's, Socrates is not freshly teaching anybody anything. The Mino comes right before this. So yeah, they've, they've talked about recollection. But I don't think recollection is in the Mino described explicitly in terms of the theory of forms, if I'm correct. But uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. It seems like this is just, there's not really an argument for recollection. It is, we're going to describe recollection and consequently the theory of forms, which is sort of an elaboration of what it is we're recollecting, just enough so that we can then use that to argue for, well, there must have been a soul before birth, because how could we be recollecting things from before birth unless there was something there to know the things beforehand in a noumenal realm in which that soul was informed about all these things or was in touch with all these things? As sure as Mark is saying that, you know, there's the assertion that learning is recollection. And therefore, something has to have been recollecting. Therefore, the soul is immortal. If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partiallyexaminelife.com slash support and sign up for membership either on our site or on patreon.com slash partiallyexaminelife. Thanks for listening. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. 